welcome to all those who are listening in, and I shall try and uh, be as clear as possible for you as well, explain the slides, although the slides aren't... Um, uh, the slides are more to distract you. If you get bored with what I'm saying, you can enjoy the pretty pictures. And a lot of them are my holiday snaps, so uh, to give you a, a sense of where we are. So, is that all right? Anyone, is anyone in the wrong room? They're expecting um, uh, weaving or something? Uh, okay, good. <laughs> you have to be careful nowadays. Um, so, let's, let's get going then. Um, I, that lovely warm introduction. I suppose I was thinking on the way here. I've sort of the last 20, 30 years. It feels like being um, uh, a sort of evangelist for mystical theology. I remember 20, 30 years ago there was a group for starting a, a meditation centre, and um, I suggested a day on Teresa of Avila, and someone sucked their teeth and said, "Oh." No one will come to that. No one's interested in that sort of thing. Well, you know, it just goes from strength to strength. The fact that we've got so many of you here this morning, you've made the effort to come and listen to the words of wisdom from these uh, saints, I think is testimony itself. And there seems to be no let-up of interest, which is, which is a wonderful thing. Um, so let's go on to uh, Carmel, which is the, the source and... Fonset Origo of all this. And this is uh, Mount Carmel as it stands today in um, Israel, as it looks today. It's uh, of strategic significance because it sort of towers over the Mediterranean. You can see it in the background there. And here is the, the, the horrible church that you described. Um, the Carmelites will be very pleased with that description. It's called Stella Maris. And the Carmelites are very much a seafaring order. Um, my family uh, were a bit nautical. I had uh, uh, members of my family who've been in the Navy. So there's a sort of empathy there with this sort of seafaring element of the Carmelites. They are, they are a bit uh, refugees, wanderers. Um, but this is where it all begins. And this um, holy mountain of uh, Mount Carmel has always been a sacred mountain. And whenever you're reading Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, or any of the Carmelite saints, it won't be long before the imagery and symbol of the mountain re recurs. Think of John of the Cross, the ascent of Mount Carmel. You know, these images of the sacred mountain uh, are always there. Um, for the Jews, it's obviously important. Uh, it's mentioned throughout the Jewish scriptures. The Song of Songs 7.5. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. It's the place, as, as you said, where Elijah up to his tricks. Uh, Elijah is a, a fascinating prophet, and we, it's described as the place where he has the battle with the prophets of Baal, um, in Kings 18, and it's also the place where he ascends to heaven in the fiery chariot. This is an orthodox icon of the event, uh, watched by Elisha. Very important, again, sim we're going to have a lot of symbols and imagery. Um, whenever, you know, <laughs> I was reflecting, you know, you know you're not meant to think about these things in the meditation, but anyway, in the meditation I was thinking about what I was going to say. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's a funny business talking about 
mystical theology or, you know, when, when you go into prayer, the transcendence, almost words break down. And um, I think often you'll find a lot of these writers, again, those of you who've been on, on the whole of this course will know that often they have to resort to symbols and imagery. And the imagery of the chariot, the Jews call it the Mechavah, is a terribly important form of uh, Jewish mysticism. Even to this day, Mechavah mysticism, chariot mysticism, this going up to heaven uh, in a chariot. And this, as I say, comes back from this, uh, these Carmelite origins. To the Muslims, it's also a sacred mountain. Uh, it's the mountain of Khidir, the green one. Um, you'll, again, those of you who are familiar with these traditions around uh, this part of the world will know that it's associated with the, the dervishes, the Sufis. And uh, in fact, up, up to before the, the recent disturbances in the middle of the 20th century, uh, on the feast of Saint, for the Carmelites, Elijah's a saint, so it's a feast of Saint Elijah, um, we have photographs of the, the dervishes coming to the, the church, I just showed you Stella Maris, and celebrating uh, the, the uh, feast day with the Carmelites, um, so a sort of slightly happier time when there was a little more um, interfaith uh, harmony there. And for the Christians uh, as well, it is um, sacred. Uh, it is traditionally the place where the Holy Family stopped on the way to the flight to Egypt. It's also apparently where the Holy Family used to have their holidays. So you can imagine Jesus paddling in the sea uh, in the Mediterranean there. And as I say, because it's not that far from Nazareth, it's not entirely uh, beyond um, imagination. Uh, just there's the church, as I say. Just below the church, on the other side, there's a little cave, and it's called traditionally called the School of the Prophets. It's said to be the cave where Elijah uh, rested and prayed. And over its history, it's been a church, a mosque, and presently, it's a synagogue. So it's quite an extraordinary. It's only probably no bigger than this room, in fact. In fact, it's probably smaller than this room, and you can see where the altar was, you could see where the, the prayer direction was, Mecca, and now, of course, the Torahs uh, in there. So who knows what it will be in 100 years' time. But um, uh, it's, a, it's a very powerful symbol, I think, of the, the ecumenical interfaith <coughs> roots of Carmel. There are very, very, very complicated um, uh, historical stories about the roots of the Carmelite order, partly because we don't know much about them. Uh, and of course, we're going to get, you're going to hear a lot of that today, because often when you're looking at mystical theology, you have to say, we don't know much about Dionysius. We don't know who wrote the Cloud of Unknowing. We don't know where Richard of St. Victor came from. These people, it's, it's a sort of almost a tradition. It comes up so many times, you realise it's part of the tradition, this anonymity, this not knowing. It's sort of almost like a, a lack of ego. And uh, as the Carmelites moved on and came to Europe, and Great Britain is terribly important as part of that history, uh, they, they sort of created a history. Because people kept saying, well, who are you? Where did you come from? You know, we've got the Dominicans, they've got Dominic, the Franciscans have got from. Who, who have you lot got? Uh, so they sort of started to create um, a history. This is a modern uh, icon. 
and uh, here is Albert of Jerusalem uh, giving the first rule of Carmel to uh, the Carmelite fathers, and here they are in their little, uh, they were called, they were said to be like little bees in the beehive cells. This is important because um, Carmel's origin is at the, the fag end of the Crusader period, so we'd had the the Crusades going in, you know, the first, you could call it the first big interfaith encounter between Christianity and Islam. It wasn't, wasn't one we necessarily want to emulate, but anyway, the, you had the waves of Crusaders going in. And at the sort of end of this first generation of Crusades, because of course it went on for, for some time, we find groups of uh, sort of refusenik Crusaders, people who've sort of got fed up with the whole... Um, killing a Muslim episode, and they start to retire and regroup around Mount Carmel. So again, the, the sacred power of the mountain draws them. And what they find there are um, fathers and mothers who have been living on the mountain for some time. We refer to these people as the desert fathers and mothers. Now, uh, this is a day on Teresa and, and John, so I don't want to talk too much about desert fathers and mothers. But they're very important, and we're going to find them, they're going to keep coming back. In fact, everything I'm saying to you in this opening talk, you'll see, see it keep coming back throughout the day. These are the important influences of Carmel. Because Gar Carmelite spirituality, um, in its essence, is, is a, uh, a desert spirituality. It comes from the desert. And uh, this is a very important part of the rule. And we can, we can talk about Carmelite spirituality as being eremitical spirituality, basically a, a, a desert, uh, eremitical means from the desert, a sort of solitary uh, spirituality. Um, so we, we learn that Albert of Vercelli, the patriarch of Jerusalem, this, this group went up to Albert and said, can we have a rule? And uh, Albert wrote the first rule. Uh, we don't have a copy of the first rule, just to make things complicated. Um, that was lost, but we um, have the, uh, a later version, which is, will give us a basic clue as to what was the nature uh, of the first rule. This is um, a rare... I mean, this... I don't know who painted this icon, I'm sorry to say, but uh, they have been very authentic in that they've given... Carmelites, these the original um, robes, rather striking. They look like zebra crossings, don't they? They're those little Colorado beetles. This is a, a, a painting, probably one of the earliest paintings we have. It's from Siena, uh, the Pinacoteca next to Siena Cathedral, and this shows um, the Carmelites in their in that original robe. Again, you probably can't see it so well at the back. Uh, by the way, I'll leave this PowerPoint here, so if you want a copy of it, um, you know, they can send it on to you. Not a problem. Um, but I think this gives you a very good idea of the unusual style of that robe. I mean, it's very, very peculiar. Shortly after, it's more like a sort of, it is like a dervish cloak that they, they wrapped around. You could see almost visually how, how different they are in their origin as a, as a religious order. 
As we move into um, the 13th century, we, uh, there's a shift of politics in the Middle East and the Muslims retake this zone and so they, uh, uh, the Carmelites have to leave, the Christians have to leave. This is where the seafaring element sets off because they, they set off on the high seas and we find that the first groups of Carmelite convents or houses in Europe are established in seaports, so Marseille, Messina in, in Sicily, and um, here in, in London, Aylesford. Again, I'm sure some of you are familiar with Aylesford. Yes, yes, yeah. I was there a, a few weeks ago. Um, give, I give a talk there every year. Beautiful place, again, well worth visiting. And as I said, um, Great Britain and Aylesford in particular are very important for, for the history uh, of Carmel. And... Um, Eventually, uh, in England, in 1247, a general chapter of the order at Aylesford in Kent produced the uh, document Quae Honorum Conditoris, which is the final version of the rule that we have today. And this is the final version of the rule which will be accepted by Rome and will become uh, the Carmelite order that we know today. But one thing that happens is that when, you know, imagine these strange dervishes arrive. I mean, Aylesford, I don't know what it is about Aylesford. Whenever I go there, it's cold and wet. You know, a few, a few weeks ago, it was really quite damp because it's surrounded by water and a lot of waterfowl there and things. But you can imagine these, these sort of uh, hot, dusty dervishes arriving in Kent, you know, on a cold November evening. I mean, it must have been very strange for the locals seeing this lot. They also had these sort of desert traditions, these long periods of prayer, just like we did, uh, in fact, what we did just now at the beginning of the day, very Carmelite, you know, these long periods of silent prayer. Um, uh, strict observance, no eating of meat. You know, it was a very austere lifestyle. And uh, it would have been very unsuitable in Kent, you know, in the 13th century, probably un unsuitable in Kent today, but let alone then. And the, finally, after again a few shenanigans, uh, the uh, order was uh, established by Rome. At this time, got to remember, there were a lot of new orders um, bubbling up in, in Europe, so there were, there were very strict criteria. So the, one of the criteria that was imposed was that they had to get rid of that habit and they had to adopt the habit that we know today. Basically the same as a uh, a Fran they wouldn't thank me for saying this, but basically modelled on, on the style of a Franciscan or a Dominican friar. Uh, the, there were mitigations of eating meat and, and so on and so forth, various other rules, to make them more in line with, with the conventional um, Western religious orders. This is a uh, painting that comes from Spain. It's from Toledo. St. Peter Martyr Church in Toledo. And uh, I think it nicely illustrates what has happened by the time, you know, give them a couple of hundred years in Europe, and the whole order has been sort of westernised, as it were, and brought in. So now, um, and you can see as well the story of the order being uh, created and set in stone. So Mary is now the founder, 
Our Lady of uh, Mount Carmel, which is a feast day uh, in the Catholic Church. And here she is protecting all the faithful and, of course, wearing the full Carmelite habit. Um, Elijah is now a full member of the Carmelite order, so he's now got a, a proper Carmelite habit on, as have the First Fathers. You know, they've gone, gone of their stripy uh, zebra-crossing habits. Now they've got the proper Carmelite uh, habits on. So I think that gives you a nice visual image of, of how now the, the order has um, almost created its own history. Um, I think that's more or less what I want to say about the origins uh, of the order because um, I want to move on to, to Spain and, and uh, Theresa and John. In England, they were called the White Friars. Whenever you see a shopping centre or a car park called White Friars, it's normally like you know where Richard III ended up. It's normally a car park over an old Carmelite friary. Uh, there's one in Oxford, for example. Just one more quote and then I will move on to Spain because I think without this understanding it won't make sense of what's going to happen with Teresa and John. This is from a uh, Dutch academic called Kays Wadjman and he wrote a very good book on the rule of, of Carmel and this is what he wrote. He said, what we end up with, the rule of Carmel, um, sorry I've, I've broken my glasses so I've got to, I've got to do a lot of <laughs> This sort of thing. And they gave me a replacement set and it didn't work. So, so let, let's see if I can read this. Uh, the rule of Carmel embodies three religious concepts. The eremitical, so the, the original uh, way of life that we heard about in, in uh, Palestine. The cenobitic form of life. This is the uh, form of life of monks. So this is living in community. The Carmelites live in community. And the life as a mendicant brother. This is what they adopted when they came to the West, following in the footsteps of the Franciscans and the Dominicans. They became wanderers. And he writes, The combination of these three concepts is not the product of careful thought, but of life lived within a single century, from hermit to cenobite, from cenobite to mendicant. The tensions between these three types of religious life have internally led to conflicts down to this day. But they have also forced the Carmelites to go below the surface, to a deeper level, to look for the mystical space of contemplation, a level from the perspective of which all forms and concepts are relative. I think that's a very good quote because and I often use it because he gives us the sense within the Carmelite spirituality of a tension. There is definitely a tension between the need for solitude. I mean, it's a tension we all have, don't we? I mean, I'm sure a lot of you, uh, you know, one of my friends, um, uh, not so long ago, but he was leaving uh, the priesthood to get married. And um, he was worried about, you know, his prayer life and everything. And I said, well, you're you're going to find yourself in basically a monastic form of life. You know, there is a very strict rule of life in a household, especially if you've got a little child, you know, what time you get up and so on and so forth. And I said, you'll find probably just as much spiritual discipline in, in, a, in running a family as you would living in a monastery, if not more. So again, it's not just attention for, the, for these monks, this is for us all. Between the, the, the needs of the solitary, you know, our needs to be 
good Christian meditators and to have our half hour of silent meditation. The needs of the community, you know, our families, our parishes, our works. And then this, this mendicant uh, need, the need for evangelization. As I said before, I'm an evangelization, uh, evangelist for um, mystical theology. <coughs> the need to go out and spread the word. And what you see, if you look then at the history of the order in the last 800 years, it's, uh, it just switches between those three poles. So at various times, uh, it is more uh, uh, cenobitic, concentrating on the community life. Other times, it's more aromatic, concentrating on the, on the solitary life. Other times, it's more this evangelical mendicant concentrating on the, on the preaching and spreading the word and so on. And I think that helps explain what's going on in, in the life of Teresa and John, because when we get to, as we have now, when we get to uh, 16th century Spain, we find that uh, these tensions begin to come out and they begin to sort of slightly unravel what's happening. I'm going to change slides now, and we're going to move to Spain. So let's move on to Teresa. And uh, our day is on Teresa and John. The trouble is, Teresa tends to dominate everything. She always takes over, so poor old John uh, gets a little bit forgotten. Um, but that's all right. I mean, he, he would have been happy about that. He, I, I call him the quiet man of spirituality. But he's going to have a whole session for himself this afternoon so don't don't despair john fans you're going to get a whole session of him but i'm afraid Teresa is going to dominate the rest of the the morning as is her wont um as i say uh the order was established with, with blokes and then around the uh beginning of the 15th century groups of women are allowed to join the order and um, uh, the con sorry, I haven't, you've got it on your, your sheet anyway. The convent that Teresa joined, the Encarnacion, the Incarnation, which is in Avila, uh, has a very interesting history because originally it was a group of what's called Beatas, B E A T A S, Beatas, which means sort of holy women or blessed women. Have you come across the Beguines? Yes, so that's, uh, yes, and they have a beguinage still. These were, it's, it's what I always call girl power, because what happened was, uh, in the, between that wonderful period, 12th, if you had a, if you were a Doctor Who, of course women and men can be Doctor Who now, but if you were a Doctor Who and you had your TARDIS coordinates, I would recommend you to set it for the 13th century, because the 13th century was a very, prosperous and artistically, uh, culturally rich period. It's where, you know, the great Gothic cathedrals are built, where these orders begin and so on and so forth. Um, but I wouldn't suggest that you set your TARDIS coordinates for the 14th century. The 14th century was a particularly bleak time. There was a lot of warfare going. It's the period of the Hundred Years' War, you know, Agincourt and so on and so forth. Uh, the Black Death came, a bubonic plague, it decimated one in three of the population in this country. So, you know, imagine in this room, one in three of us died. I mean, it would have been it's a terrible thing, really, that happened. So it was a very bleak period. Um, and one uh, thing that 
this is something that scholars have become very interested in the last few decades, um, is that what happens at this point, there's a demographic, demographic shift. We, we run out of men. There's more women than men. Um, and there's a lot of, again, because the men are killing themselves in the Hundred Years' War and so forth, there's a lot of relatively prosperous, uh, either widows or single women, and these are the groups that get together to form the Beguinage in, in the Low Countries. And in, in England, we, have, we know that there was a Beguinage in Norfolk, for example, and uh, Julian of Norwich is sometimes associated with, with that group. So during this, this period of girl power, we have almost a, a new form of spirituality coming on. You mentioned about, about lay people. I mean, these are lay, lay women. These are not... Uh, uh, professed religious. These are lay women coming together, a bit like us this morning, you know, coming together, uh, taking the Bible, reflecting on passages, reflecting on the, on the life of Scripture and so on. And that's exactly what happens in, in Spain, in Avila. Um, the, uh, the lady who forms the group, um, I've forgotten her name, I apologise, um, is actually the, uh, the uh, partner of one of the canons of Avila Cathedral. So that's an interesting uh, take on late medieval Spain. And she gets together a group of her, her ladies in uh, Avila, and they then form the convent of the Encarnacion. And at that point, it would have been a bit like um, McDonald's or something, you know, or, or a franchise. You know, you apply to the head office for the franchise and you get the franchise. So you apply to the Carmelites in the room and said, yeah, that's fine, you can, have, you can call yourselves Carmelites. But I think that, you know, when we talk a bit later, as we will, of the reform of Teresa and John, I think the origins of a lot of these Carmels, it then makes sense about the reform. Because when we think of um, monasteries and convents, we think of, you know, very holy people, you know, like... Um, the Sound of Music, isn't it? You know, uh, uh, what's she called? Uh, Maria von Trapp. You know, all these very holy, pious uh, young ladies, all in white, all in red. That is not what a late medieval convent or monastery was like. I mean, they were pretty chaotic places. Now, um, you know, this year we celebrate the, the, the Reformation, and um, whatever your views on the Reformation, it was quite clear that the late, late medieval church did need reform, and even the, the Roman Catholic Church itself, by the time we get to the, the middle of the 16th century, says, you know, this place needs reform. Uh, and there were uh, a, a strong moves to reform um, the Catholic Church from within. This is, of course, where, where Teresa and John fit in. If we read a visitation, for example, there's a visitation to the Encarnacion, um, this was about the middle of the 16th century. I can't remember the date. But um, if you read the records, I mean, your, 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 your um, mouth will drop to the floor, the things that were going on. I mean, one of the sisters has a black slave. And they say to her, well, you can't have a black slave. She said, well, I'm going to keep my black slave. It was given me, so I'm going to keep my slave. You know, I mean, these are the, other sisters would go out. Others would have lovers, you know. I mean, it was just unbelievable, really. So you can see why uh, the place did need some reform. When we look at uh, Teresa, um, this is uh, an icon that was uh, commissioned 
by uh, a friend of mine, Julian McLean, who I'm sure many of you uh, have met. I would like to tell the story of this. this we were in, um, uh, not far from Tabor, in fact, where, where I just showed you a few years ago, and we went to Nazareth, and we went down to the Melkite church uh, in Nazareth, and they had beautiful icons, and we were very impressed. And we said to uh, one of the parishioners there, he said, oh, who made the icons? They said, oh, the sisters up in the hills made them. And they said, well, could, we said, could we go and visit them? They said, yes, of course. So we set off and drove up to the hill. And by the time we got there, about, about half an hour or so, by the time we got there, all the sisters, there were only three or four of them, they were all standing outside with the gates open, uh, waiting for us. So oh, that's nice. Someone's obviously rang up, you know, say there's two crazy people coming up, better get ready. So we arrived and they welcomed us, took us in, and there were all these lovely tea and pastries and everything. It was a beautiful welcome. And then during the course, as we were drinking the tea and they were asking questions, it became clear that we weren't the people they were expecting. <laughs> which was a bit embarrassing. <laughs> and as it was, the people they were expecting didn't turn up, so we, we got the cakes and everything that they'd obviously spent a long time making for these other people. So we felt so guilty, we thought we'd better commission an icon from them. So this is how this uh, icon came into place. And there is... Uh, I'll talk more about this as we go through the day. And as I say about symbols and imagery, very important in, in this work. Here is, is Christ, here is Teresa. This is a good, um, the, the sister has taken an example of Teresa's signature, and I think it gives you a, a good uh, example of her writing. Her writing is very distinctive. Again, um, you can probably find it online, but it's very good to uh, just look at her style of writing. Teresa, of course, is a very important figure in Spanish uh, language, and in English, um, the first book written by an English woman is Julian of Norwich. And in Spain, Teresa is one of the first women to write in Spanish. So her, she, she writes her Spanish at a time when... It's a bit like Shakespeare in many ways. It's a time when Spanish is just being set into paper, the grammar's being codified, etc., so there's something of the roughness about Teresa's style. I mean, those of you who are Spanish speakers uh, will know it, it, it's not easy to translate. It is easy and it's not easy to translate Teresa because, first, she doesn't write in an um, academic fashion. John does. We'll see this afternoon when we look at John's writing. He writes in this very particular academic way. Teresa, it, it's more spontaneous and flowy, but it's not necessarily grammatically correct. Now, I quite like that because I'm not necessarily <laughs> grammatically correct. And, um, you know, I often have problems uh, getting my books to, to read in a grammatically... Um, you know, my copy editors tear their hair out or are trying to make sense of what I've written. But I find um, with Teresa, sometimes some of the translations polish over the, the rough edges. Now, just, just a word on translations. Um, the two main ones are uh, Alison Pierce, A-L-I-S-O-N. We don't have a flip chart. It would be nice to write some of these things down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would be nice, just to write some of these names down, because people 
like to have them there. So A double L I S O N Alison Piers P double E R S. And that's not um, uh, a woman, not a transsexual. It's a man, Edgar Alison Piers. So that's the old translation, which was made in. It's the first sort of full translation of her works in English, proper full pucker collection of her works, made in the 30s or so. Now, that translation is the older one. Um, I think it's out of copyright. You'll, you'll find, easily find it on, on the internet, copies of it. And if not, you'll get cheap copies in the second-hand bookshop. Um, but actually, that older one is closer to the spontaneous Theresian style. And often myself, I use that as, as the basis. And the... Um, passages that I'm going to give you, uh, a lot of the translations I've used Alison Piers as, as the basis. The more recent one that was made in the 70s is by Kavner and Rodriguez, that's K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H and R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z. This is the more up-to-date one, um, it's got the more scholarly apparatus, so when my Students are studying the text. That's the one I recommend. Um, with Teresa, I don't. I'm not so keen on their translation. It smells of patchouli oil. It's got flared jeans. You know, it's a bit seventies uh, tie dye sort of feel to it, um, and it, it's sort of looking a li little bit dated now. And to be honest, we do need a, a new translation, but I'm not going to do it. But I'm sure someone will come and do one shortly. Um, However, having criticised their translation of Teresa, I, I prefer their translation of John. So when we look at the texts of John this afternoon, that's the one I, I prefer to Alison Pierce. Unfortunately, Alison Pierce in his John translation tends to use more archaic English, you know, these and thous and so forth, and I find it, it slightly distracts. So I prefer Cameron Rodriguez for John and Alison Pierce uh, for Teresa. Um, here's Avila, uh, one of the highest capital cities in Europe. We think of Spain, you know, Castanets and uh, Sangria and so on and so forth. Um, actually, a lot of Spain is incredibly mountainous. It's the most mountainous country in, in Europe. And I think that, that photograph really gives you a sense of the very dramatic weather you get in, in Spain. Who's been to Avila? Wonderful. So you know what it's like. You know, it can get. You have extremes of temperature. I was there in August. I don't like going there in August, but I was there in August this year, and it was really boiling hot, very unpleasant. Um, I always like to show this rather gaudy uh, picture of Teresa. This is the uh, built over the uh, shrine where she was meant to have been born. I don't. Not sure whether she was born in the place where she's meant to be born, but anyway, that's what they say. And I think when you go into that shrine, you have to put sunglasses on. There's so much gold and silver coming out, it really hurts your eye. And um, I like to uh, give this quote from uh, an academic called Davis. He writes It's always difficult to see a saint clearly through the billowing clouds of incense, but particularly so in the case of Saint Teresa. 
it is as though she herself had conspired to reveal as little of herself as possible. A strange remark to make in view of her usual and deserved reputation for for frankness and sincerity. The point is, he continues, that she is both frank and sincere when she chooses to be so. At other times, she is deliberately vague and prevaricating. There's something odd going on. When any of you who are familiar with her writings, as I say, she's got this, she wrote this book of her life, and she's got this reputation for this candor, but there's also, you get this sense that there's something else going on behind the surface. And of course, academics being a sceptical lot um, have become more and more interested with this something else. And you know, I've done quite a bit of work on it myself. But this is not just a modern phenomenon. One of the people she worked with, called Geronimo Gracian, wrote almost exactly the same thing. He was writing to one of the sisters at the time when he was trying to write a biography of Teresa. And this is what he wrote 500 years ago. You have given me an account of your lineage much more readily than the blessed Madre Teresa de Jesus. The the Spanish call her Teresa of Jesus, Teresa de Jesus. We English normally refer to her as Teresa of Avila. That's how I refer to her. For when I had inquired in Avila into the lineage of the Ahumadas and Cepedas, that's her her ancestry. Uh, Cepeda literally means rock. Some good Avilan rocks for you. When I'd inquired in Avila of the Ahumadas and Cepedas, from whom she was descended, amongst the noblest family in the city, she became very angry with me because of what, of what I was doing, saying that she was content to be a daughter of the church and that it grieved her more to have committed a venial sin than if she had been descended from the vilest and lowest peasants or Jewish converts. Very interesting statement. Because um, until very recently, and we didn't realise how true that was, uh, until very recently, in 1946, um, a Spanish scholar was rummaging around in the archives, municipal archives in Valladolid, the administrative capital of that area. And there he found a, a very interesting document the interesting document um, is a uh, description of a court case. Now, in Spain at this time, as in today, uh, tax dominated everything. And if you were from a noble family, you had tax exemption. So Teresa's family, the Cepedas and Ahamadas, as, as, as we just heard, asked for tax exemption because of their noble lineage. And we hear, in, if we read the account, we see that everything went well and you know, they, they gave testimonies about how they'd fought for the king and so on and so forth. Then all of a sudden, uh, things start to change. So in 1520, this is when Teresa was five, uh, unusual or differing voices come into the narrative. So Bernardo Platero, a resident of Avila, testifies that Teresa's father and grandfather were, quote, reconciled by the Inquisition in Toledo and wore there the San Benitio. 
And then Juan González de las Puenuelas also testifies that they wore the San Benitillo with its crosses publicly in procession with the other reconciled ones and walked in procession from church to church for seven Fridays in succession. And this is this funny garment that they, they're referring to. We normally call it the San Benito. And um, this was a, a garment of punishment and humiliation. The uh, court case had to stop these shocking revelations, and um, they had to get on to the Inquisition in Toledo to find out what was, was there any truth in this rumour. And then the Toledo people wrote back a few weeks later and wrote, it is certified by the Holy Office of the Inquisition, the city and archdiocese of Toledo, that on the 22nd day of the month of June in the year 1485, Johan de Toledo, merchant, son of Alonso Sanchez, inhabitant of Toledo in the district of Santa Leocardia, gave, presented and swore to a confession before the then Lord Inquisitors, in which he said and confessed that he had done and committed many serious crimes and offences of heresy and apostasy against our holy Catholic faith. And as a consequence of that, he would have had to him and Teresa's, this is Teresa's grandfather and Teresa's father and uncle, would have had to have worn this horrible costume walked around the city of Toledo in procession. You can still see the processional route. They still, they still, they don't get people to do this anymore, but they still do the processional route uh, at certain times. People would have thrown eggs and cabbages at them. And then at the end of this horrible experience, uh, this would have been hung up in the uh, church, so with their names on, so everyone could see. Um, I always think, have you ever seen that film, Chocolat? Have you, have you ever seen that film? Yeah, about the French film set in the 50s. And at the beginning, there's a voiceover and it's talking about the village. And, and it says, it's a place where everyone knew their place. And if you forgot, there was someone there to remind you. Well, that, that's Spain in the 16th century. You know? everyone, everyone knew their place. And if you forgot, you would be reminded. And of course, this was the sort of thing that was quite difficult to, to cover up. And so most of the family, after this, this humiliating event, uh, left Toledo, and he, he, her grandfather came to Avila, bought a Christian lineage, which you could do in those days, and made sure his <coughs> sons, including uh, Teresa's father, got married to good old Catholic stock, and, and did basically a very good cover-up job. The court case shortly after these revelations, I mean, you'd have thought after this they wouldn't get it, but actually they get it. The court case suddenly stops <coughs> after this, and then they're awarded their, um, uh, their uh, tax exemption. I think there may have been um, some money changing hands somewhere. But anyway, uh, it's very strange the way that happened. But I think... If we know, now that we know all that, and again, this is only in the last 40, 50 years that we, we've, we've really uh, got the sense of this. If you read three, uh, biographies of Teresa up till the 1950s, you'll find they all mention her good uh, Christian lineage. Um, Vita Sackville West, the famous English uh, poet and writer, you know, she wrote to her 
biography, I'm sure again many of you have read it, The Eagle and the Dove during the, the Second World War in her little tower in Sissinghurst. And in that book, she talks about Teresa's noble lineage. And that, that's very common for, for any biographies of Teresa up till uh, the modern era. Interesting enough, one of the, the uncles didn't uh, um, accept the ruling of the Inquisition, and he left Toledo, presumably left Spain, and to continue his Judaism. So, so Teresa had... And at least one uncle who was still uh, a practicing Jew. So I think if we know this, so there's this element of uh, unease, if you like, that lies behind her prose. We know that she comes from this Jewish converso stop. Second thing is she was a woman. Um, now, uh, again, you can read in the sheets, she, uh, her mom got married at 14. Uh, which is quite normal. Nowadays, you ring up Esther Ranson and child life. Anyway, um, uh, quite normal. You know, you, you, you got married at 14. She had about nine or ten children. We're not quite sure which Teresa was one. And then died in her 30s, exhausted. Um, you know, uh, the lot of women was not a particularly happy one at that time. And also, again, Spain in that time, women were, were almost um, in perda, really. You know, a woman's life, you would spend mostly stuck inside a, a, a palacio, you know, where you, you wouldn't go out much. Teresa, her mother, as I say, died when Teresa was a teenager. And it's, her father was very devoted to her mother, when she died, um, her father was basically in, in grief, in mourning, in, in depression. And uh, Teresa was left a bit to her own devices. And in the book of her life, she described how she was a bit, um, you know, all over the place. And to sort of try and get her ready to get for the marriage market, um, they decided the best thing to do was to send her to a convent for a few months, just to calm her down. I mean... It wasn't the intention of making her a nun, but so that she could, as I say, be prepared, learn how to hold a knife and fork, get ready to be a, a good wife to someone. The convent she joined was an Augustinian convent, Our Lady of Graces. Again, it's still there in Avila. And um, at first she found it difficult, but to her surprise, she says in the book of her life, slowly she began to enjoy the presence of the sisters. And she says in the book that there was one sister in particular, one of the older sisters, who, whose presence had an effect on her. And I don't know, again, about yourselves, but I think in our spiritual journey, it's often not so much what people say as their presence. You know, in, in, in India, um, you have this notion of the guru. And um, when you uh, go to learn from the guru. It's not that you sit there and listen to the guru's words. You watch how the guru eats his, his dal. You watch how the guru sits. You watch how the guru talks to people. I, I spend, uh, each year I spend a few weeks in India with my guru, Christian guru. <laughs> and um, it's just amazing. I mean, you just, you just spend the time with him and watch how he, he deals. You know, people just come in, village people and so forth. Uh, not just people, the way he deals with animals and plants and, and, and so on and so forth. 
And this is the effect that, that this nun had on Teresa. It sort of began to calm her down. So that when the time came for her to, to come back to the household, she, much to the horror of her father, said, I want to be a nun. Um, and again, it might sound a strange choice for us, but if you think of the alternatives, and if you were a slightly feisty, intelligent woman, as Teresa clearly was, very intelligent woman, I mean, I've been reading her stuff for 30 years now, and, and uh, the more I read, the more uh, intellectual I see she is. You know, she was a highly intelligent woman. Being in a convent would have been an attractive proposition. I think it would have been a, 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 you know, a very good choice for her. As I say, the convent she joined was um, the Encarnacion, the, the Carmelite convent. And again, the irony of irony is not only from her Jewish background, she was joining this order that came from this Jewish uh, origins, from Elijah and Carmel, but even more ironic, if you go uh, into the convent, and as I'm sure some of you have, and they've got a little museum there, and if you look very carefully, it's at the very bottom of one of the display cases. It's quite difficult to see, but you'll see this document, and this is the uh, deeds for the convent. And if you read it, it's actually the old Jewish graveyard of Avila, and when the Jews were expelled from Avila in 1492, this land was given to uh, the lady who founded the Incarnacion. So Teresa spent most of her adult life literally living over the graves of her ancestors. It's still, again, those of you who have been there, it's still an extraordinary place. I've led retreats there uh, several times over the years. And as a retreat director, you don't need to do much because... It's like fire coming out of the soil. I mean, there's so much uh, spirituality coming up, not just the Christian, but the, the Jewish uh, uh, roots within Avila. Avila, by the way, uh, have you heard of the Kabbalah, the mystical... Jewish, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the mystical, uh, popularised by Madonna, the singer. You'll have heard of Madonna, the singer, yeah. Um, and uh, the Kabbalah, the, the chief book of the Kabbalah, the Zohar, the Book of Splendour, is said to have been written in Avila. So Avila was a centre of, of mystical Judaism uh, before Teresa and John came onto the scene. So then, um, we have Teresa in, in the, um, the craziness of the Encarnacion. And then um, some interesting events happen. Uh, she reaches the age of 35. Uh, when I reach 35, my... One of my analysts sent me a birthday card and said, happy 35th birthday, a very dangerous age. And <laughs> 35 is, is uh, I'm just looking to see if there's anyone here around that age group. But uh, 35 is, is, you know, the Jungians amongst you will know it's the time of transition from the, the first half of life to the second half of life. Jung talks very solemnly of it, you know, of a, a bell tolling and... From now on, what will be uh, small will be great, and what was great will be small, and so on and so forth. And something about this happens to Teresa. You know, as a young woman, she's very um, chatty, lively, vivacious, outgoing. And when the Encarnacion, because again, they didn't have regular food supplies there. Uh, the earliest letter we have surviving of Teresa's uh, is a request to the family estates outside Avila, which is probably where she was born, 
uh, for, it's like a shopping list. She wants um, so many partridge. She liked partridge, that was her favorite food. Partridge and doves and things like this, uh, and artichokes and things. Um, so whenever the, the convent needed um, alms from the people of Avila, they would always send Teresa out. She was the one who would always come back with the most food and, and money and so forth. But during this, this time, suddenly something happens. She has a physical breakdown. Um, we're not quite sure what happened. Uh, all we know from the Book of the Life is that she... Uh, what was, which became unconscious for, for at least a day. And when she woke up, um, she couldn't open her eyes because uh, they put wax over her eyes because they thought she was dead. So they were preparing her for, for burial. Um, so she was very lucky she wasn't buried alive. Not uncommon at that time. And in fact, one of the other convents celebrated her requiem mass. Um, uh, she had a sort of psychological change and also, I think, a spiritual uh, breakthrough. You know, people, I'm, I'm a, I work as an analyst and people come with these, these breakdowns and I say, it's a breakthrough. You know, they think I'm mad, you know. But often these things are, a break. we call them breakdowns, but they are breakthroughs. And she was very lucky because um, her uncle, uh, one of those people who'd been paraded before the Inquisition in Toledo, Pedro, uh, took her in. She, she left the convent to convalesce. And uh, she was very lucky because she gave, he gave her a book. And the book is called The Third Spiritual Alphabet. And it's from um, by a gentleman called Francisco <coughs> de Osuna. This was a very common style of this period. You would get an alphabet and each letter, it was a way of memorising it as well, each letter uh, would have um, a significance. So if you look on your sheet, prayer journey uh, with Teresa of Avila, uh, un body physical, what I've put there, always walking, you can see it, always walking together, the body and the spirit. That's letter A from the third spiritual alphabet. Anden siempre juntamente el cuerpo y el espíritu. And um, where it says TA, that's tercer abecedario, third spiritual alphabet 1.1. And uh, you can see the quote there. Friendship and communion with God are possible in this life of exile. This friendship is not remote, but more sure and more intimate that ever existed between brothers, sisters, or between mother and child. The communion is more certain than anything else in the world, and nothing is more joyous, more valuable, and more precious. This book had a profound influence on Teresa. Now, Avila at this time was not lacking in saints. Uh, there are some of the great greatest figures of 16th century, they call it the golden age, uh, living in Avila at the time, Juan de Avila, uh, she had Francisco de Borja visited, uh, various great Jesuits and so on and so forth. When she writes the book of her life 20 years after this event, when she's in her 50s, uh, she says that 
This book, Third Spiritual Alphabet, was her master for 20 years. And she said she had no other spiritual guide but this book. I mean, that is an extraordinary statement. As I say, when you look at who was in Avila at that time, these great people, the fact that she sees this book is so important. Um, when I arrived this morning, my heart was strangely warmed, as the Methodists say, because when I walked in, um, there's a second-hand bookstore. I don't know if you've seen it uh, as you came in. Yeah, yes, yeah. And I love second-hand bookstores because um, I couldn't... I have to confess to my, the organisers that I spent five, ten minutes just going down. And I always like going to a second-hand bookstore and seeing what book will, will speak to me, which book will come to me. You can't do that on Amazon, you know. And, um, you know, sometimes in our spiritual journey, a book... We don't have a spiritual director, yeah, especially if we live in a remote place or whatever. Um, and sometimes a book is terribly important. You know, I, I'm sure this has happened to many of you here. You, you will find or a book will appear in your life and you say, yes, this, this speaks directly to my heart. That's what this book did to Teresa. And when I was writing my doctorate on Teresa, um, Everyone talks about this book, but nobody reads it. So I thought, well, it's probably quite important to read this book. Um, and as you can see with these little quotes I've given you, they are very, very powerful. I mean, the second one I've given you here, wherever you go and whatever you do, be attentive and mindful. I'm, I'm very much uh, increasing... I'm writing a book at the moment. This is the last one before I have a pause. Uh, on mindfulness and Christian spirituality... And, uh, you know, some, quite often now when I'm translating the Spanish, I, I use the word mindful or mindfulness, and it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, Whatever you do, be attentive and mindful, and do not proceed di divided against yourself. Do not let the body go in one direction in an, and the heart in another without being mindful of what you are doing. Above all, serve God with this mortal body. And when you read the, the third spiritual alphabet, and it's a great book. I mean, I really commend it to you. There's, there's, a, there's an edition, um, the classics of Western spirituality. It's still available. It is, yeah. Classics of Western spirituality. I think it's edited by Giles. I think Mary Giles is the editor, probably. But the, the classics of Western spirituality, they're published by um, uh, Paulist Press. And they're brilliant. I mean, any of the people I'm talking about, Julian of Norwich, Catherine of Siena, whatever, always, whenever a student wants to look at one of these people, I always say, go to that, the classics of Western spirituality text first and, re and uh, read the... the uh, text, but also read the introduction, because they have really good introductions as well. And, yeah, you, you, you read that, if you read that text, you can almost imagine Teresa reading it and the effect it has on it. I mean, this quote I've given you from, this is, Vida is the Book of the Life, chapter 22. We are not angels, and we have bodies. To want to be angels when we are on this earth, and as much on the earth as I am, is ridiculous. When we are busy or being treated badly, when life is difficult or when we cannot get that much quiet and when prayer is dry, 
we have a very good friend in Christ. We look at his humanity. We see him in weakness and difficulties. And he is company for us. Once we've acquired this habit, it's very easy to find him at our side. So she read this text. She began to develop this type of prayer which Francisco um, recommends. In Spanish it's called recogimiento. Normally translated in English as recollection. And not unlike, basically not unlike what, how we started the day. You know, going in, uh, Francisco says two, couple of times a day, he says go withdraw, and it's a book written for lay people, not just for religious. Um, he says, withdraw from your activities, go to a darkened room, uh, quieten yourself, read some scripture. So this is the form of, of spirituality she wants to develop. And it really has an effect on her. It really helps her to begin to integrate the body and the spirit, always walking together, the body and the spirit. And from this time onwards, she... Uh, uh, decides that the, the craziness of the Encarnacion is not for her. She needs a place that's quieter, more stable, where there is more of this recollection available. And so her and a group of her sisters um, form a little convent. It's called San Jose. Again, the details are all on the sheets there. Um, it wasn't easy, the... Uh, townspeople of Avila, they had quite enough hungry monks and nuns to feed. They didn't want another convent, so there, were, there was a lot of opposition. But Teresa, someone said earlier, you know, it must have been very difficult for her as a woman. It was very difficult for her as a woman, but she could play the game. You know, she knew how to get things done. And uh, she managed to get uh, the, the, the town council on her side. And then for the rest of her life, really, with, with a few interruptions, uh, she would devote the rest of her life. This is the missionary aspect. And remember I said at the beginning, the Carmelite order had these three prongs, the, the, the contemplative, the aromatic, the living in community, and the, the mendicant. I think what had happened at this period in the 16th century was that the, the mendicant and the community had been in the ascendancy, but the contemplative, the desert bit, had been a little bit put uh, on the back burner. And when we look at the reform of <coughs> Teresa and John, it's basically wanting to bring back that contemplative side, bring back the, the smell of the desert, the smell of Mount Carmel. As I said at the beginning of this day, you know, the, the smell of Carmel keeps coming back into the, 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 the nostrils of the reformers. So I think this is why she wanted to develop these small houses, quieter houses. She said, going back to the primitive, the original rule of Carmel before it was mitigated as it came to Europe. In fact, what she called the, the primitive rule wasn't the primitive rule. It, was, it had already been mitigated, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. And she then spent the rest of her time basically trundling around Spain in an uh, ox cart, and there's some wonderful stories associated with that, forming these little convents. She called them her little dovecoats uh, for 
good biblical number, good 12 sisters uh, and, and uh, an abbess, and they would then uh, establish them. Now, again, if you look at the history, and after lunch I'll talk about John's uh, uh, reforms as well. If you look at the history of Teresa and John's reforms in Spain, what they actually do is, uh, and it, Teresa wrote them all up in a book called The Book of the Foundations, um, to, they, they, they highlight, or they pinpoint a town. Teresa would roll in, and um, what she would usually do is find a group of holy women, Bealtas, Begins, who are already uh, practicing some sort of spiritual exercises together. So, you know, she comes to, imagine she comes to London today and she hears about this holy group at Islington, you know, the world community, and she'd, she'd pile up to Islington, get to know all the, the holy women here, and say, well, why don't you become discalced Carmelites? And they say, oh, yes, we'd love to wear habits and join your order. As it, looking a bit dubious at the back there. But uh, this is basically what she did in Spain. She, she went into uh, a town and found the, the holy women, the Beatas, and then sort of corralled them together, gave them a rule. Where she founded a convent in Spain, what you'll find if you visit those convents, some of them are in big cities, some are in small towns. They're very proud of the ones that Teresa herself founded. And there's one... Uh, her name's escaped me now, but I know the lady from that little town. It's in um, La Mancha, you know, where Don Quixote comes from. And um, they're very proud in that town because there's a little seat, and every day Teresa would go and sit on the seat and supervise the building work for the new convent. And so it's still today Teresa's seat, you know, so it's the holy seat of Teresa uh, where she would sit. So that's a little bit about uh, the, the background, and I think it's important to, to have a sense of that when we're, you're making sense of her, of her writings. <coughs> so, I'd like to finish before lunch by saying a little bit about her, uh, her mystical theology, how she sees um, the, the spiritual life. And here... Um, uh, I've, I've already mentioned the, the collected works. There are basically four main writings by Teresa. The one that I've already been referring to is what we call the Book of the Life. When she founded uh, the San Jose, her little convent, there were a number of people saying, you yeah, know, who is this woman? I mean, by what authority is she doing this? Interestingly enough, the, the papal... Uh, 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 rule that allowed that convent to form was not done in Teresa's name because Teresa was considered a little um, a dodgy. So one of her friends, who was a, a sort of titled lady in, in Avila, was the one who got the permissions from Rome to do it. So when the, the convent had been founded, people were saying, well, who is this woman? Why is she doing this? And so it was suggested that she write the Book of the Life to give the uh, justification. Now again, as, as one of you said, um, the problem, of course, was, was the, the authority of women. I mean, women were not allowed to study theology, certainly not allowed to teach. So if you look at people like Julian of Norwich, Catherine of Sieva, Teresa of Avila, Hildegard of Bingen was mentioned earlier, um, 
they will often appeal to their experiences of God. So Teresa in the Book of the Life makes quite a lot about the, the experiences, the favours, what she calls the gustos, the regalos, the yeah, gifts yeah. that she receives from God. When she arrives in um, the convent, uh, she wants her sisters to have the same experience that she had as a young woman reading Francisco de Asuna. And again, Teresa read very avidly these books, these spiritual books, available for lay people at the beginning of the 16th century. Unfortunately, by the time she founded her convents uh, in the 1550s, 1560s, uh, these were not available. Because in, in 1559, and at this point, you've got to imagine that you know, the Reformation is really taking off in Northern Europe. Spain has uh, turned its back on that. You know, it said that we must not get infected by this Reformation from the North. So there is a very strict index of books produced in 1559. Uh, on that index goes the Third Spiritual Alphabet. And a lot of the books that she read as a young woman are now no longer available. So again, because she wants her sisters to have something of the formation that she had, she then has to write her books. So the next book she writes, very interesting book, hopefully we'll have a little bit of time to talk about today, The Way of Perfection. Then we have uh, the one I mentioned, The Book of the Foundations. This one... She wrote, it's like a history book, really. She wrote on and off throughout her, her life, and when she died, it was still not completed. And then, towards the end of her life, and we'll refer back to this uh, later this afternoon with, with John. Um, now, this is the most difficult bit of the, the talk, because um, it's so complicated. Again, at this point, I really would urge you to, to read my book on this one because I remember writing this chapter was very difficult but basically in a nutshell we have four um, powers operating we have um, the Pope in Rome and the head of the Carmelites in Rome we have King Philip of Spain now when you think of someone like Henry VIII founding his church and everything you think well that's odd behaviour. But actually, Henry VIII was just behaving like any other medieval monarch. I mean, medieval European monarchs saw the church as their own, their own um, domain. And Philip was no exception. Philip of Spain behaved very similarly to Henry VIII in this respect. So Philip sort of had his fingers all over the religious orders in, in Spain. He was always interfering. And at various points, he threatened to take over control of the, the religious orders in Spain. Not uncommon at that time. So Pope, King Philip. Then you have um, the head of the uh, Carmelites in Spain. And then you have the papal nuncio in Spain. So you've got these four people, and if you look at the history, it's very, very complicated because the power shifts keep going from one to the other. Now, Teresa and John, I mean, I don't want to make 
Theresa is a saint, a doctor of the church, but I don't want to, to make out, give the impression that she was somehow a devious woman. But she, she did know how to uh, uh, move in court circles. I mean, she had that training, she had that polish, she knew how to, to um, work in the, let's call it, the establishment. So, for example, King Philip was very in favour of, of Theresa and was always very supportive of her. That was not the same for those that were coming from Rome, from the head of the orders. There was always a bit of suspicion about who was this woman. And the fact that she was in favour with King Philip didn't help her in many ways, because that was, well, you know, my enemy's, enemy's, enemy's friend is my enemy sort of thing. So the, the long and the short of all this is in uh, 1570s, 1577, um, the Teresa and John are told to stop this reform, stop these foundations. We'll hear about what happens to John this afternoon. He's, he's taken away, uh, take, actually taken to later. Teresa is told to retire from public life, go back to a convent, don't found anymore, and, and just be, you know, come out of the, this role. Now, interestingly enough, that's an interesting little point here. Um, again, with the life of Teresa, you always have to look at the, the, the fine details. She doesn't go to Avila. You would have thought she would have gone to San Jose, but she doesn't. She goes to Toledo. Remember the home of her ancestors, where, where the family was from. And while she's retired, or in prison, it's a bit like Robert Mugabe, you know, he's retired from public life, surrounded by his military. Um, while she's retired in, in uh, Toledo, she writes this extraordinary work called The Interior Castle. And this is one of the great no doubt about it. And um, she wrote it in about three or four months, without a desk. She, apparently she wrote it on the, on the windowsill. Uh, we have reports of sisters uh, observing her writing. Also, she wrote it at a time when her whole life work was, was, had been thrown in the bin. You know, everything she'd worked for, these little dovecoats, these little places of prayer, this recollection, this silent prayer, all had been dismissed by the authorities. So again, it's an extraordinary text, really, that she's, she's uh, presenting here. So what does she say in that? Well, she writes that our situation is that we have this wonderful, rich castle within ourselves. I showed you earlier the walls of Avila. And the, the, again, the symbols, the symbol of the castle, very important symbol for Teresa. She writes, each of us possesses a soul but we do not realise its value as made in the image of God, a very important uh, element for Teresa. Therefore, we fail to understand the important secrets it contains. So we are all um, blessed. You know, we are blessed with this, this, this wonderful, rich uh, resource within us. But the tragedy, she says, is that we are bewitched from it. We cannot see it or enter it. We are full of a thousand preoccupations. Our mind deceives us with obsession with these preoccupations. 
leading to darkness and delusion. And she says in particular that the two main preoccupations we have are, can be boiled down to riches, material possessions, and honour, how other people perceive us. So these are the, the, the two poisons, says at one point, that, that poison our, our wells. Now we began the day with um, a meditation and uh, beautifully led. And uh, I always think, especially those who aren't um, used to these things, it is a bit disconcerting to be put in silence for 20 minutes you know, with, with very little preparation. And if you look at Teresa's work, she's very good on this because um, she, as I said, was a very intelligent woman. She had a very active mind. And the moment we uh, stop, you know, we come in, we've done our busy stuff, we, we sit down, we go into mindfulness, meditation, contemplation, the mind just carries on, doesn't it? It keeps chattering on. I remember once uh, Dom Lawrence gave a talk in Salisbury and um, one of the, the folk, I used to live in Salisbury, one of the folk uh, there said, um, you know, when I try and meditate, uh, I sit down and you give the, the mantra and everything and all I can think about is, uh, you know, have I, have I switched the, uh, did I switch the gas off? Uh, what time does Waitrose close and so on and so forth? And, uh, and Don Lawrence said, oh, yes, yes, that's a very, very good point. He said, um, said often when we try and pray, uh, we think about, you know, what time does Tesco close? He said, no, no, Waitrose. <laughs> very, very, very Salisbury. <laughs> but, um, so the Buddha, the Buddha says, our mind is like a monkey. You know, have you heard this phrase, the monkey mind? Where I go uh, in India each year for... for, for ashram for a retreat and um, we this was last year we were meditating outside and then a, a family of wild monkeys came because i was completely distracted by this and you know in england you pay money to see this and all these monkeys and the destruction i mean they were they were going in. of course the the why the, the 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 proper meditators they were completely ignoring the, the mayhem that was going on but they were pulling branches down this is the mind says the buddha you know the the mind we we are evolutionary designed to be hunter gatherers always on the lookout you know the the, the saber-toothed tigers might come at any moment you know so we're, we're constantly we've got our senses always directed outwards in another passage the buddha says um the mind is like a wild elephant. Again, I've seen wild elephants and the damage they do uh, in India. And in another passage, the, the, mind, uh, the Buddha says, the mind is like a wild elephant in rut. Can you imagine? A randy wild elephant, you know, wreaking the destruction. So we've got this, you know, we've got a, we've got a tall order trying to, to tame the mind. You know, how, how do you tame a wild elephant in rut? It's very difficult, really. And, you know, you can use what we did this morning, the mantra, very good way of, 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 of taming the mind and bringing it down. Teresa's very good on this. Um, this is a, a lovely passage from the Interior Castle. She says, now you can imagine this when you're doing your, your silent meditation, we shall always be glancing around and saying, are people looking at me or not? 
If I take a certain path, shall I come to any harm? Dare I begin such and such a task? Is it pride impelling me to do this? Can you hear this chattering that goes on? Can anyone as wretched as I engage in so lofty an exercise as prayer? Will people think better of me if I refrain from following the herd? Streams are not good, they say, even in virtue. And I'm such a sinner that if I were to fall, I should only have further to fall. So she sort of goes on, and it's wonderful, isn't it? That lovely sense of, of this uh, chattering that goes on in the mind. And what she writes about in um, her writings is how we can begin to calm the mind, how we can return to the palace. And she says we need to develop um, a change of attitude. We need acceptance, openness and humility. All very, very important. This second book, um, The Way of Perfection, is interesting. This is the one I'm just finishing this mindfulness book. And I've st- <laughs> uh, whenever I start writing a book, uh, Theresa of Avalor usually turns up and takes over. She keeps always taking over my life. But this is what's happened a bit in this book because the, the book of mindfulness has become a, a commentary on, on the way of perfection. And it's very interesting because what she... If you look at the way of perfection, uh, it's not a manual of meditation. You know, she doesn't give prayer techniques. You know, you come to... WCCM, and they, they give you a, a prayer technique. That is not Teresa's way. And in fact, speaking to Carmelites, they're, they're very clear. When I gave the day for the other day, um, they said, yeah, that is not the Carmelite way. One of the friars said, uh, said to me, the Carmelite way is you create a space. The way of the Carmelites is you create a space, and then it's up to, to you and God, basically. It's up to you and and, and the divine to, to sort out what goes on in the space. And you can see Teresa doing that. In the, the Way of Perfection, only about half of the book is on prayer. The rest of the book is on the conditions of how we live our lives. Now, I mentioned at the beginning the, the Desert Fathers. Teresa read the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Um, and one of the... Uh, Phrases I always think of when I, when I read to is, is from John Cassian, who, of course, was very influential on, on uh, John Mayne and, and Lawrence Freeman. And John Cassian, in his uh, conferences, it's book nine, a conference on prayer, says, whatever we would like to be at the time of prayer, try to be outside of prayer. I'll repeat that. Whatever we would like to be at the time of prayer, Try to be outside of prayer. It's this idea that, you know, you, you come in, you, you, you do your meditation, 20 minutes, and then you can go off and just carry on as though nothing's happened. The idea is that you're going to integrate the prayer or the meditation with the rest of your life. The mindfulness people are very good on this. You know, the mindfulness people talk about uh, mindful eating, mindful walking, and so on and so forth. That's what Teresa is after. She's saying, you know, when we start thinking that prayer, or when we start making prayer or meditation or contemplation an end in itself, then we've missed the point. Now, I've given you this lovely, um, right at the end here, uh, 
this is uh, the, the penultimate page of your, your sheets here, under service. She writes, this is typical Teresa. When I see people very diligently observing the sort of prayer that they have and very wrapped up in it when they have it, for it seems they will not let the thought move or stir in case they lose a small morsel of the gusto, the, the, the pleasure or devotion that they have had. I realise how little they understand of the road to the attainment of union. They think that the whole business lies in such things. No, sisters, no. The Lord desires good works. And if you see a sick woman to whom you can give some help, Never be affected by the fear that your devotion will suffer. Take pity on her. If she is in pain, you should feel pain too. If necessary, fast so that she may have your food. Not so much for her sake as because you know that the Lord desires it. So the conditions of our life, the conditions of prayer, are as important as prayer itself. They, they mutually... Uh, flowing to each other. I always give the comparison of the uh, symbol again. You remember the, the yeah. woman who yeah. washes uh, Christ's feet with nard? Do you remember that? The perfume. Yeah. She puts perfume on his feet, dries it with her hair, and it says in the Gospels that the smell spreads throughout the whole house. So, you know, we engage in these discreet times of prayer but the idea is it's going to the, the aroma is then going to fill uh, the rest of our lives so through dependence she says we discover our, uh, through prayer we discover our utter dependence upon God the source and the son we must learn to accept the gift of God's life to us uh, Asuna, again, at the beginning of the third spiritual alphabet, says, um, we must always begin prayer with a prayer of thanksgiving. Very important, you know, when we do our prayers, we thank God for, for the gifts that we've given. The second thing she, she stresses is openness and freedom. You'll find this in, in uh, John of the Cross as well, that very, very frequently talk about spiritual freedom. Again, thinking of the context, all the stuff that she'd had to deal with as a, as a, in her family in Spain at that time, you know, the anti-Jewish stuff, uh, the, mis the suspicion of mystical prayer, suspicion of women following the, 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 their spiritual path. Uh, you can really um, empathise, I think, with this need that they have for spiritual freedom. She writes, It is very important that no soul which practices prayer, whether little or much, should be subjected to undue constraint or limitation. She talks about, she says, don't get into a corner. She literally says that. Don't get into a corner, she says, in your prayer. Don't get caught up. You know, if you find your prayer getting tighter... You know, people come to me and not just spiritual direction, but therapy as well. And they say, you know, well, what, what should I do about this in my prayer? What should I do about that in my prayer? And I say, I don't know. I'm not the guru. You know, I'm not God. Only God knows. Only you. And, it's between you and God. You know, it's a mystery. But, I say, so, don't, 
they'll, they'll demand their money back if I said that. But, uh, uh, but uh, there are clues. This is what Teresa said. She said, notice how you feel. Notice where it's lead, leading you. Is the prayer leading to calmness, quietness, openness, attentiveness? Or is the prayer leading to distraction, worry, you know, oh, I'm not saying the mantra in the right way, you know, what was it she said, Maran, so I couldn't quite catch it. You know, if, if that's going on, then something's not right. You know, if prayer is leading to distraction, to, dis, you know, dis, disintegration, then, then it's, it's falling in the wrong way. This is her again. When I see people very anxious to know what sort of prayer they should practice, covering their faces and afraid to move or think, lest they should lose any slight tenderness and devotion they feel, I know how little they understand how to attain union with God. And very important, uh, we've almost finished now, those, those who need your, your lunch, very important behind all this is humility. Again, it's an ancient Christian virtue. In my... Um, uh, I'd better not tell that story. It's being, it's being recorded, so... <laughs> I'll save that one for later when the, when the records are... I get a bit annoyed about some of this stuff nowadays. But anyway, um, she says that humility is our honey. She says, without humility, all will be lost. Remember I said earlier that there were these two distractions, uh, possessions, our wealth, and honour. And she sees humility as the, the uh, anti, uh, antidote to honour. We, we need to... Um, you know, Meister Eckhart said, a lovely phrase of Eckhart, he said, God's in, I'm out. You know, that's, that's what she's talking about here. How we can step out the way to let, let God work in our lives. And um, I think to, to conclude, and then we'll have our lunch, at the heart of all this is what she calls the trato con Dios. She writes, the trato con Dios, que no es otra cosa oración mental, a mi parecer, sino trata de amistad estrando muchas veces, tratando a solos con quien sabemos nos amar. Mental prayer, you could translate this as mindfulness, is none other, it appears to me, than a close intercourse. Trato, I once uh, asked a group of Spanish speakers, now what, what is this word trato? It's not, you'll often see it translated as friendship. And one of them said it's, it's like the relationship you have with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. So it's, it's closer than friendship. It's, it's a much more intimate uh, relationship. Alison Pierce translates it as a close intercourse. I think that's, that's more what it means. Frequently practised on an intimate basis with the one we know loves us.